our scripture this morning, scriptures, the first of which will be from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their feet, two they covered their faces, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Our second passage comes from the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 19 through 20. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And our third passage comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Michael, for that wonderful reading of the texts today. I want you to think about the last time you went on a trip out of town. What were the steps that you needed to take from, you know, leaving the door to to arriving? Maybe it was last week for many of us going to Skycroft Conference Center for our annual church retreat near Hagerstown, Maryland. If you were like me, maybe you opened up the email first from Elizabeth Denglinger-Reeves and the retreat committee telling us the details and the time of when we needed to be there. Then you check Google Maps, just look up Google Maps and see, you know, how long it's going to take for you to drive and which is the best route to take. Then I would look up the weather to see what kind of clothes I needed to bring because last weekend it was much colder up there. Then I would go pack my bags and maybe get in my car and start, and start uh, uh, <laughs> listening to my tunes, maybe pick up breakfast and a coffee along the way. And finally, you would park arrive in the parking lot at the Skycroft Conference Center. But even if you arrived there safely following the GPS, there was like all these buildings and you don't know which building do you actually go into. And when you actually found the right building and you go through the glass doors, you'd see Crystal and Kendrick and Mim sitting there at the table ready to check you in. Now those are all the things that we, can, we know of and we can prepare for. But even then, there are a number of things that can delay us or derail our plans. And then there's the things that we can't plan for traffic and weather, our internet going out as we're driving and we lose the GPS uh, navigation. We don't know what we don't know on those journeys, right? So it is with our spiritual journey abiding with Christ. 
And in this Abide Message series, we've been learning about how to go further in our relationship with God. Jesus called it abiding in him. John, the Apostle John and, the, and Paul used the terms in Christ or in him to describe this intimate relationship that we can develop with God. Ancient Christians called it practicing the presence of God. And really this journey is about living in the pace of and at in the presence of Jesus as his apprentices on this journey. And last time we learned about how each of us have our unique personalities that influence the pathways that we connect with God. And these are unique giftings like our dominant hand. For me, I'm right-handed, so I rely on my right hand for doing a lot of things. But in our spiritual journey, we discover it's not a solo venture. That's why God calls us into a community like WCF, so that we can go further and learn to use our non-dominant hands in how we engage in our relationship with God to lead us towards further likeness in Christ. And that's the whole goal of being a follower of Jesus. The goal is to take on the life of Jesus himself so that the teachings and the ways of Jesus become second nature to us. But along that journey, just like any other physical journey, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know about God. We don't know what we don't know about ourselves and how we see the world. And there are parts of our lives that are yet to be aligned with the ways of Jesus and his kingdom. So today we're going to look at the stages of the classical Christian journey and how God invites us to move from this place of anxious care to a place of radical trust in God along this process. This journey, we're going to talk about the journey, the obstacle, and the way. The journey, the obstacle, and the way. Now, as I said earlier, most of us relate to God naturally, the way that we're wired. So if some of us are more logical and rational, then we like theology and scripture study. If we prefer to engage with our emotions and senses, then we are really energized by a rich and sensory worship experience. If we're more relational, then we really see God at work in relationships and in community. And if we uh, have a strong sense uh, of compassion for the marginalized, then we really love engaging and see God at work in issues of compassion and justice. Those come very easily to us. But here's the thing. This journey of being formed in the likeness of Christ, it often doesn't take place in the areas that we are most like Jesus. It takes place in the place where we are most unlike Jesus. That's where God works the most. In Christian tradition spanning, this, uh, spanning centuries, this process has been known as the classical Christian journey. It's a journey where unlikeness to Christ leads towards likeness to Christ. It leads us from misalignment and alienation from God towards alignment to God and God's kingdom. It leads us from brokenness towards wholeness. And this classical Christian journey, you see a kind of a picture up on the screen here, is typically described in four stages. Awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. Awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. And this journey describes both our overall relationship with God towards maturity, but also specific areas of our lives where God is working. It's both general and specific. So this classical Christian journey uh, takes place in these four stages. And they, these four stages can be 
taking place simultaneously in our lives in different parts of our lives. And we never really arrive at the end in this present life fully. And so today, we're just going to look at the first two stages, awakening and purgation. And next week, we'll finish it off with illumination and union. So awakening describes the stage of initial awareness. It's what happens when God's loving light shines into a corner of our lives. Spiritual awakening is often a two-sided experience. There's this encounter with the living, true and living God, and there's this encounter with the true state of our hearts. And in this stage of awakening, we begin to see something about ourselves, and we begin to see something about God that we didn't see before. And in this Isaiah text that Michael read for us, we see one example of an awakening that happens to Isaiah, among many uh, examples we find in Scripture. What happens to him? Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, saw the Lord in a way, high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And what's his response? Verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Two-sided experience. Isaiah's encounter with the Lord describes how an awakening to God also corresponds to an awakening to our misaligned and incomplete nature. And in that awakening, there is also an experience of both comfort and of threat in God's presence. As we are awakened, we find comfort in God's love and forgiveness and holy presence. And our hearts are burning, saying, this is what I've been longing for in my life. But we also experience a potential threat, a threat to our, in our awakening to the possibility that we are not what we ought to be. And God, in fact, is far, something far more than we thought than before. It's what is described here in Isaiah's encounter with the presence of the Lord in the temple. There is both awe of God's presence and nature, but there's also threat at the same time. Because un unholy beings encountering a holy God cannot respond in any other way. And at the moment of this awakening, we experience a tension because of this simultaneous comfort and threat. Our hearts are longing and hungering for more, saying, God, I, I want more of this. But something also inside of us resists. Because God's invitation is gentle and holy and loving, that's real, but it's also a threat to our way of being and moving about in the world as we have known it. God's presence is both the safest place to be in the entire universe and simultaneously the most unsafe place to be in the entire universe. So how do we respond when we encounter God in this way? I think most of us are hesitant. Like our alarms wake us up from our slumber, we're tempted to press the snooze button on God's awakening. Okay, later, God. Just a few more minutes in the comfort of my warm and cozy bed. We don't like the unknown of the coming day. It's cold. It's dark. I like what I know right now. That's what we often respond with. Or we can get up and step across this threshold of a new day in our relationship with God. 
this leads to this next step of purgation. Now, I know Crystal just asked me before this word, what this word means. What's purgation? Well, it comes from the word purge. So that gives us a hint. Once we are awakened to this possibility of a different way of being and moving in the world as Jesus' apprentices, God's Spirit leads us through this process of bringing our behavior, our attitudes, and even our desires into increasing alignment with this growing perception of what it means to be more like Christ. Purgation is about integrating into this new order of being in Christ by unearthing these areas of unlikeness in our lives to Christ. And purgation happens at many different levels, and so I'm going to point out four here. The first and most obvious ones, uh, level is what Christian, what fathers and mothers of the Christian faith have called gross sins. Now, they're gross. Some of them are gross because they are disgusting, but they're gross because they're very large and obvious. They're described in the Ten Commandments or the various sin lists that we find in Scripture, like Galatians 5. And these behaviors are clearly and unmistakably inconsistent with God's will for our flourishing and for the flourishing of the world. They're often so inconsistent that even people who don't consider themselves followers of Jesus will agree, yeah, that's not what humans do to one another. That's the first level. God sifts those out of us. Second level is these willful transgressions of the known will of God. These are behaviors and values that may be considered normal and acceptable in the culture around us, but Scripture and the Spirit of God tells us that these are not part of God's will for our wholeness and for our flourishing. For example, scriptural norms for sexual behavior have always been and still continue to be more stringent than what our surrounding culture might value. Our culture now probably prioritizes consent and pleasure as the ultimate guiding ethic in sexual behavior. But scripture speaks of another ethic to inform sexual activity. Human sexual behavior is meant to be expressed within the covenant of marriage and is used to image this intimacy and this commitment and the joy experienced between God and God's people. So that's a second level of purgation. Now, third level is stumbling blocks for others. When we are stumbling blocks for others, areas that we become stumbling blocks for others. There are some behaviors that may not be inherently bad themselves. They may be biblically acceptable, but perhaps they're not acceptable for my own journey with Jesus because of concern and care for our neighbors. For example, Paul addresses the Roman and Corinthian church over a conflict, whether eating meat is considered sinful in Romans, 8, uh, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Now, most Christians now, I think, don't struggle with this particular matter of eating meat unless you're convinced of the industrial agricultural complex and choose to be vegan or vegetarian. But the principle behind Paul's instruction here is what is, is, is looking at what is destructive for one's personal growth may not be, may be acceptable for someone else. But we choose to limit our freedom so that we might be responsible to care for the pilgrimage of a fellow sister or brother in Christ, who may not be convinced of that same freedom that you are. So we choose to limit, and what is not considered sinful on paper may be considered sinful in a, as an offense or as a discouragement to our neighbors around us. 
another example that this might uh, be seen in is choose, and you might feel totally fine to have a cocktail or a drink or have a glass of wine in the evening and at social uh, engagements, if you invite people over, you'd offer them a drink. But for someone who's a recovering alcoholic, you might choose to limit your freedom in offering those kinds of drinks for their sake. And then we get to this lower level of unconscious sins, which, as I kind of pointed out in, in Romans chapter 7 that Michael read for us, as we go deeper, we begin addressing these unconscious sins and omissions that we are not aware of. God's Spirit begins to reveal aspects of our inner life that have been invisible to us, but now begin to be seen as hindrances towards our growth, towards wholeness and flourishing in the image of Christ. Francois Fenelon is a 17th century spiritual master who colorfully describes this particular stage of this spiritual journey like a traveler reaching the horizon on a vast countryside. Maybe you've experienced it before, driving across the plains. You see the horizon, you see the road gets there, and you think, oh, I'm almost there. And then you get to the top and you see this whole other uh, uh, vast countryside opens up and then you realize there's more to come. He describes it like this. But in the daily round, every day, God constantly shows us new countries. We find in our hearts a thousand things that we swore were not there. And God only shows them to us as he makes them appear. It is like an abscess which bursts. The moment it bursts is the only one which horrifies us. Before that, we were carrying it without feeling it, and we did not think we had it. And he continues, we only see self-complacency, pride, and subtle selfishness as God begins to make them emerge. See, we don't know what we don't know until God shows it to us. An awakening is this first step of awareness to God and of our incomplete nature. And purgation begins to sift out those areas of misalignment in God's character and intent for our flourishing. And these first two stages of the the classical spiritual uh, Christian journey begin to open our eyes to a new way of moving and being in the world and a different way of following Jesus that leads to true flourishing and to be our true selves as God intends for us to be. So that's the first two stages. And so let me talk about this, an obstacle. As we look at these first two stages, it's very easy to assume that unlikeness to Christ focuses merely on behaviors and actions. But in fact, these areas of unlikeness go deep within our psyche, whether it's gross sins, willful transgressions, stumbling blocks, or unconscious sins. Purgation, uh, this process reveals something far deeper within our hearts. It begins to, purgation begins to unearth our false assumptions about ourselves, about God, and about the world around us. In other words, purgation begins to deal with our fundamental trust structures. What do we rely on in life? Purgation begins to reveal these deep inner postures where we really do not rely on God, but instead we rely on ourselves for our well-being. And this turns out to be the greatest obstacle to our growth in Christ-likeness. It's our attempt to maintain control that is often our biggest source of anxiety in life. Catholic theologian and psychologist Benedict Grishel describes this process 
of maturity in Christ and maturity of faith as entering into a relationship of radical trust in God. And he describes this movement towards mature faith as the decline of anxiety and the increase of peace. As we move further towards maturity in Christ, we experience a decline in anxiety and an increase in peace. It's what Paul describes in uh, his letter to the Philippians, saying, rejoice always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your, uh, do not be anxious, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So do not be anxious about anything, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want you to think about it. When Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he's sitting in a Roman prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to get out alive. But Philippians is one of his most warmest and tenderest letters that he writes. And he's doing that in the midst of a prison cell. Paul isn't talking theory. He isn't writing platitudes and making nice social media posts on his wall. He's living out the reality of what it means to trust God and to let go of control in a very difficult circumstance. And all the while, he's encouraging the Philippian church to step away from anxious care and step into deep and radical trust of God. You see, anxiety and overbearing care are often symptoms of our failure to trust God. And of course, there is some anxiety that can result from biochemical imbalances that medication and therapy are available to us to help with. But anxious care arises when we are driven by the need to control and order our lives according to our plans. But people in D.C. don't struggle with that at all, right? People, uh, you know, anxious care can become a consuming passion in our lives because we're trying to protect ourselves. And it distorts relationships. It distorts events and activities of our lives. Anxious care causes us to put on a set of lenses over our eyes that colors the world based on, that is uh, based on our brokenness and based on our experience and even our trauma that colors the way we see the world and the people around us. And as a result, anxiety-driven people feel the need to impose their own order on the events of their lives, on their stories, and on others even, and even upon God. Anxiety-driven people are, are, are captive to this need to maintain control of their existence for good reason, to protect themselves. But they are unable to become God's persons for the sake of others. And they can be captive to this need to protect themselves against others and manipulate others for their own purposes. Anxiety-driven people cannot become God's agents of grace to a broken and hurting world. We see this anxiety-driven behavior in groups, especially who fear that they are being marginalized. When the Christian faith is weaponized in this manner, we begin to see that God is only on our side. And God, anyone who threatens our sense of control and safety becomes not only our enemy, but perhaps is even an enemy of God. We see that show up in Christian nationalism here in America. We see it on the extreme left or extreme right when responding to cultural issues. There is this desire to control environments in the name of safety. 
leveraging the fear of who they deem as the group's enemies or opponents for the sake of preserving their position. That's anxious care. But there's freedom from a life of anxious care, and it starts with acknowledging that it exists within our hearts. Now, you may not be one of those people who is writing on, and, and protesting and trying to control others, but I think all of us do struggle with an area of control in our lives. What areas do you find difficult to let go of control of? Maybe it's an area of unlikeness to Christ that God is inviting you to explore. And that's this part of the stage of purgation that the Spirit is beginning to point out. Take a moment right now. Take a deep breath. Whatever that is for you, just name it and say, God, it's there. I struggle with controlling this and trusting you. And go into this next step. What's the way out of this anxious care? It's a leap, life of deep trust in God that's evidenced by joy. Paul encourages the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Moving from anxious care to joy in God isn't just some pop science, name it and claim it, speak your truth into reality exercise. It's not some escapist delusion or superficial happiness that denies the difficulty of the circumstances that we're in. The way from anxious care and into deep and abiding trust in God is found in 4, verse 5. What does Paul say there? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, this is kind of a weird sentence here in the NIV or in the English because of this, well, okay, how do we rejoice? Let your gentleness be known to all. But this word is, that's translated as gentleness in the NIV or in other translations as reasonableness. They don't convey the full sense of the Greek word, which is epiakis. And this word means not insisting on every right or letter of the law or custom. It's yielding, it's gentle, it's kind and courteous, and the word tolerant. And perhaps a better translation of verse 5 is, is this, let your forbearance be known to all. But you're saying, that's not really helpful. I don't know what forbearance means, except like in the, in the pandemic with mortgage forbearance, right? What Robert Mulholland conveys here um, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, if you want to take along, I've relied a lot on this, on this, um, on his, on, in his and Ruth Haley Barton's work here, uh, Invitation to a Journey. But he writes this, forbearance is the idea of living according to an established reality in the face of alternatives, especially threatening ones. Forbearance is the idea of living according to an established reality in the face of the alternatives, especially threatening ones. You see, apprentices of Jesus live their lives within a particular order of being that may not be immediately evident to all. And this order of being and reality transcends our present circumstances and even destructive events in our lives. So how do we find and live out this forbearance and leading to true joy? The immediate sentence after, the Lord is near. God is near. God is with you. 
The way out of anxious care and into this joy of God is to recognize God's activity in Christ in every circumstance. And Mulholland describes it like this. Christ is the matrix of Christian existence in the world. Christ is the matrix of existence in the world. We don't know what we don't know. We don't see what we don't see. But Scripture tells us when we follow Jesus, there is a reality, an eternal reality around us. Jesus' followers are forbearing present circumstances and even destructive ones because we recognize that Jesus is active and his kingdom work is, is going forward in the midst of it. Jesus is the overlay of our reality. And that's why we can rejoice. We can forbear these present circumstances because the one we trust is above in, uh, and above and near all. Our joy is found in Christ and this eternal kingdom of God that seems invisible to our eyes, but whose power and presence can be felt if we're willing to pay attention to it and to him. The way to radical trust and joy in God is to recognize there is this alternate reality, a more substantial and eternal reality at work that leads to true flourishing for the entire universe. And this alternate and more substantive reality is where the classical Christian journey is meant to lead us towards, to pay attention to. And it's this way of moving and being in the world that pays close attention to God's presence and activity around us. As we travel on this journey as fellow apprentices of Jesus, God's Spirit begins to reveal to us what we don't know. And we find ourselves moving from this place of anxious care to a place of radical trust and joy in God. And if this is what you've been longing for and you're, and you're wondering how do we do this together, stick with us in the coming weeks. Because we'll discover that as apprentices of Jesus on this journey, there are practices that will help us Move from brokenness to wholeness, from unchristlikeness towards Christlikeness, from a life of anxious care to a life of radical trust and joy in God. There are practices that we can do together to pay attention to this alternate and more substantial reality. But for now, may this prayer be your prayer for today. Bow your heads and pray with me if you're comfortable. Oh God, I feel like Abraham must have felt when he started his journey of obedience to you, not knowing where he was going. I'm uncomfortable not having control of my itinerary, not being able to choose the route. And while my present brokenness and incompleteness is not always pleasant or comfortable, at least I'm used to it and I know my way around it. But help me to let you lead me out into the unknown. Overcome my fear with your love, my hesitancy with your hope for my wholeness. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.